Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe and Naren. And in the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to be talking a bit about lifestyle medicine. And we have a special guest with us, uh, Dr. Sam Manger. Dr. Sam Manger is a general practitioner with a focus on lifestyle medicine and mental health. He is the academic lead and senior lecturer of the postgraduate suite of courses, which includes the master's, graduate diploma, graduate certificate in lifestyle medicine at James Cook University, College of Medicine and Dentistry and GP training, as well as a senior medical officer in the mental health services with Queensland Health. He's an ambassador for Equally Well Australia and a member of the advisory group of the RSGP's Shaping a Healthy Australia project. Dr. Manger also hosts the GP show podcast for health professionals and was awarded the RACGP Queensland GP of the Year in 2021. So Sam, uh, thanks for joining us on the program and welcome to Cracking Addiction. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I thought I'd start the program off by, by asking uh, a simple question and a set of definitions. Uh, what is lifestyle medicine? Well, it is what it sounds like. So it's lifestyle as medicine, just as we say exercise as medicine. It's those domains. So using lifestyle assessment and interventions to address the lifestyle and social determinants of health. So the main, the most, the, the domains are uh, nutrition, obviously, food, movement, sleep, social connection, green scripts or blue scripts, like connection with the natural world, social prescribing, and then mind body aspects like stress management, mindfulness, meditation. And those, and then there's also the drivers of lifestyle medicine. So we talk about health coaching, which is a the, the perfect partner, um, behavior change methodologies, as well as the way we think about health service delivery and models of care, because these really need to evolve so that we can actually deliver lifestyle assessment and interventions far more efficiently and effectively than we do currently. So it sort of requires a little bit of a reflect there. So essentially, it's kind of like health professionals in enacting public health, but at their level at the individual and the micro levels, whether it's at the clinical level, community level, hospital level, uh, schools, workplaces, you know, and other sort of geographical loca locations. And, um, yeah, it's a huge field because there's subspecialties within it. So there's lifestyle psychiatry, which is uh, plenty of papers on and, and other sort of fields. And I hope one day to see, you know, lifestyle cardiology and lifestyle endocrinology and other areas, which are, you know, already established in the science, but uh, as a clinical field, it would be nice to see. Indeed. And you've given a very good description and it just shows how broad lifestyle medicine is and how many different fields it encompasses. We've got the medical and the allied health aspects of it as well, as you've kind of elucidated there. And I, I feel lifestyle medicine is, is getting a bit more attention in, in the general media as well. But could you explain a bit more about why lifestyle medicine is so relevant as to how we practice medicine, but also how we treat our patients or consumers. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge, uh, it's a huge <laughs> thing to say, really. But with so obviously, uh, your point before around allied health. I mean, allied health are uh, you know experts in their field. Lifestyle medicine doesn't try and be you know people who train in lifestyle medicine like myself or teach us. I'm not trying to make someone to the level of an exercise physiologist or physio because I can't do that. They are absolute experts in their area. Um, but what we're aiming to do is really improve the skills, nonetheless, the knowledge, skills, practice, like I said, the health coach and behavior change approaches, and then the models of care and the services so that we can far more effectively do these, uh, just to, to sort of clarify that point. The, the reason it's relevant is, well, first of all, every guideline, com Productivity Commission, uh, you look at, is, is recommending 
and reports and all this sort of stuff are recommending that we actually address the lifestyle and social determinants of health rather than uh, there's nothing wrong with pharmaceutical and procedural medicine. They're obviously life-saving, life-improving. We've made a no- imp- very impressive gains in that area. Um, but uh, we are absolutely <laughs> neglecting, and, and it's sad to say this, but that is what the, the research says, or largely neglecting, addressing those lifestyle and social determinants in a sort of really effective and efficient way. There is a huge burden of chronic disease, which everyone who's a clinician and researcher in health and really probably in society knows. Uh, the rates of diabetes type 2, for example, is going up uh, significantly. Obesity, we all know, is going up. We see evidence of atherosclerosis now in 20-year-olds um, in the heart. We're seeing uh, autoimmune diseases and other um, neurological diseases related to lifestyle determinants get worse. So these are all the trajectories we're seeing. And then, of course, the costs go up. And it's not just physical health, it's mental health. And there's a lot of evidence demonstrating the path the relevance of pathophysiology of lifestyle determinants in both physical and mental health. So these trajectories are getting worse. Um, and like I said, the costs on society and individuals is huge. Uh, and the costs of treating them with pharmaceutical medicines is huge. Um, we spend about 18% of the health budget on pharmaceutical medicine, only about 6.5% on primary care. So you can see how much we're needing to spend on this major arm of our treatment. So the lifestyle of medicine is relevant because we're trying to essentially build the third arm of healthcare in a meaningful way. We know that 90% of cardiac disease can be prevented. We know 80% of diabetes can be prevented and the list goes on for prevention. But what really excites me is the treatment. I mean, when people realize how powerful lifestyle interventions are in their clinical experience, they do it with patients or they experience it themselves, which is how a lot of doctors come across it by being you know, unwell themselves and then treating themselves and you realize how powerful it is. You know, there are some major, major publications, you know, in the, in the, the Lancet in 2018-19 published the direct trial, which showed that up to 80% of type 2 diabetes uh, could be put into remission with diet alone. And there are many approaches there, whether it's caloric restriction, fasting, low-carb, plant-based, um, plant-rich, whatever. There are many approaches. You can reverse heart disease. Um, we now know that 40-50% of dementia is is uh, related to lifestyle determinants and uh that there's more that you can do in that that uh, mild cognitive impairment and early dementia than we first thought with lifestyle treatments, which is very exciting. Mental health, I could go on. I give talks for hours about mental health because it's my area of uh, interest. Um, that depression exercises as effective as, as psychotherapy and uh, pharmacotherapy and treating depression. And uh, you, I could go on and on to the various domains about relevant. That is, it's also safe and also people want it. So. It, it 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 deserves to be <laughs> recognized as the the first line foundational treatment that's essentially non-negotiable um but uh it, it needs that i suppose that push in a, from a movement sense to make it so absolutely and from what you're saying the lifestyle interventions that you've described are both cheap and highly effective and there's really no downside as opposed to some of the other interventions that we sometimes use in in medicine and healthcare so I guess I'd encourage our listeners and viewers to really consider reviewing lifestyle interventions in, in the treatments. And there is, as you mentioned, really good and robust evidence for lifestyle interventions. And to try yeah, and segue some... a bit into... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say there's, there's, there's some areas where evidence is very strong. I think mental health, heart disease, metabolic disease... Um, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty strong in heart disease, quite strong in metabolic disease and mental health and a few other disorders... 
um, cognition health, cognitive health, but um, some areas that we need more research. Uh, and I, I'm excited about what will come out in that, uh, you know, autoimmune disease, for example. So I think it's a very exciting field to be part of, if I can rally the flag. <laughs> Absolutely. And to shift to, our, I guess, my area of interest, which is substance use disorders, how relevant or how is lifestyle medicine relevant in substance use disorders? Well, I think about this, I sort of break it up into three ways because the good thing about lifestyle interventions is that they are pan-effective, right? So it's not just like they're just effective for diabetes or for X. They are, they're good for diabetes and for <laughs> everything else. So it's the same with substance use disorders. People with substance use disorders, as we know, uh, rarely have just a substance abuse disorder. There could be physical health comorbidities. There could be mental health comorbidities um, or... Uh, there could be other sort of unhealthy behaviours that will eventually lead to those sorts of problems. Um, so so you, I think about the benefits of lifestyle interventions across three spectrums. One is specific to substance use disorder. One is for the comorbidities, which are obviously you know, depression, anxiety, um, physical health. And it's important to remember that physical health uh, disorders or physical illness and mood disorders are the top two by quite a way um, risk factors for suicide. So that's very important. Um, and then as behavior, sort of a gateway to more positive and healthful behaviors. So that's another reason that you would want to instigate these lifestyle interventions as a preventative as well as a sort of behavioral, uh, like I said, as a gateway. Because generally when people start to experience benefits from these said interventions, whether it's whatever it is, sleep, movement, et cetera, et cetera, uh, they then generally get a taste of a more positive uh, way of living and uh, they feel better as a result and they want more of it. So that's important as a sort of what we call a gateway behavior, as you, the opposite of what you might see with a gateway substance, which sends people in a, in a negative direction potentially. Um, so I think about it across those things. So, so within those domains, and obviously the problem, it's hard to encapsulate all of this because there's so many domains I'm trying to summarize. So I apologize if I'm talking a bit, but uh, for physical activity, uh, is there's some pretty good evidence. There was, there's been some meta-analyses uh, showing, and it's pretty much always moderate to high-intensity exercise uh, that is uh, good for most conditions, just as a side note. Light-intensity exercise rarely has many benefits, uh, even in heart disease or cognitive dis uh, function, et cetera. Um, but that, that looks like that it, physical activity can increase absence rates and ease withdrawal in those with substance use disorders, which is good that it's specific. And also when they did that meta-analysis, they looked across opioids, alcohol, tobacco use disorders, polydrug use, et cetera. Um, so that's very good. And then, then the, probably the next or one of the other strong sort of domains in lifestyle interventions that is effective is simply social connection, as we would expect. And when you look at the the requirement for support and the beneficial aspects of support, so when you look at a lot of the very effective therapeutic plans around here, the peer-led recovery programs, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous or Smart Recovery, which I think is a you know, really excellent um, service that people should check out, the listeners should check out because they have online um, groups, they have, uh, and it's open to all different uh, substances, which is really great. Uh, so that's got very good evidence um, and, uh, and often can be more effective than other established treatments here like CBT and uh, so, and often people with substance use disorder, when they, when you look at the research, they they state that one of those really important factors for maintaining absence was that peer support, that social connection element, uh, a, a supportive relationship. And so, and I think anyone who's gone through, you know, it's all good to talk about. Oops, sorry, it's all good to talk about the research here, but 
if we just go back to remember we're humans <laughs> and when we relate with other humans, uh, you know, you feel better, right? When you've got someone to share your struggles with and who's also been on a similar path, then it makes things more bearable and improves the resilience of an individual to be able to push through those hard times. And so sometimes we get a little bit lost in, is there a randomized control trial for this? Is there a meta? It's like, yeah, okay, but let's just, this is common sense. Think about this for a second. Of course, a person who's well-connected is going to like do better, assuming those connections are beneficial like they would be in a smart recovery program largely. Some of the areas where there's indices of evidence, but not um, a lot of sort of interventional evidence specific to substance use disorders, uh, are things like sleep interventions and um, specific stress like relaxation training and um, nutritional uh, interventions, medical nutritional therapies and that sort of stuff. But there is still um, evidence that certainly, obviously, people who suffer from a substance use disorder have very poor sleep and that worsens outcomes increases uh, psychiatric condition prevalence and, and that sort of stuff. So we need to take that very seriously. Um, we need to, stress is obviously very high, uh, high probability and concerns around emotional dysregulation in people with substance use disorder. So clearly supporting people with a mental well-being practices, whether it's uh, emotional regulation practices, uh, like simply naming emotions, and there are obviously many types. Um, relaxation response, training, mindfulness. There is some mindfulness we know works very well for anxiety, depression, but there's some evidence says it's not as effective substance use disorders, and that probably doesn't surprise me a lot. And then nutrition, there's, like I said, not a lot of evidence to say that there you can put someone on, say, a Mediterranean diet or a low-carb diet or a you know, plant-only diet, and it improves their it reduces their you know improves their abstinence rates and reduces their uh, withdrawal symptoms. So we don't have those trials. It would be nice to see them, whether it's true or not. But certainly we know people with substance use disorders frequently suffer from nutritional deficiencies. So, and we certainly know that, for example, the SMILES trial, and there's been four randomized control trials now showing that um, a Mediterranean diet in those with depression improves roughly about a third of people with moderate to severe depression, which is very impressive. And that's across young adolescents, the trials have been done, and adults as well. So clearly providing the brain and the body with the minerals and vitamins and substrates that it needs to operate effectively uh, is good for it, surprisingly. Um, so I think we can deduce that all of these interventions, whether there's a randomized control trial or not, should be used, one, because of common sense, two, because we understand the mechanisms, and three, because at least there's you know, some evidence, but of course, more is, more is always needed. Thanks, Sam. That was a pretty exhaustive list of how relevant lifestyle interventions <laughs> are in, in, in substance use disorder. In fact, I can't imagine why we don't do more of this. But I guess to, to uh, one of the things that I sometimes encounter in my clinical practice is a lot of um, health practitioners will say, oh, yeah, we know lifestyle interventions are good, but a lot of the people that we deal with in, in, in the hospital and outpatient clinics are, are homeless or quite marginalised. And sometimes it's thought of as lifestyle interventions are, are, are something for the middle classes or it's something to do when someone has got, like, say, some of their baseline needs potentially met. Do you have any anything to say with regards to how relevant or how applicable some of these lifestyle interventions can be for, for that, say, that homeless um, population or, or those marginalised groups we sometimes encounter who've got pretty significant substance use disorders? Mm, okay, well, I'll try and answer that in sort of three frames. One is the sort of broad concept of should we be doing it slash, you know, do they work or is it relevant? Uh, the second is 
um, my experience in in marginalized groups, and, and I'll just I'll share that. But then, as far as I, so, and in the thirties, research, and I can't really speak. I, I'm not aware of a huge amount of research in specific populations of people who are um, homeless, for example. So I can't really comment with substance use disorders and they do life interventions. That's quite specific research. I can't really comment and say yes for sure we know, and because that's that. But um, I can certainly say just from a principal point of view, coming back to my first point, is that absolutely we should be doing it. I mean, we've already highlighted that it it it, it can help people and it's safe. And so this is an equity principle to me. Like if you want to give people the best care, don't everyone, doesn't everyone deserve the best care and medicine they can get? And if, to me, that includes and must include addressing lifestyle and social determinants. Now, I, t- I totally appreciate that these are huge challenges in specific populations like people with homelessness and those social determinants like accommodation are the, really the number one pressing thing that will, will likely improve their, their overall standing and situation and prognosis. So fully fully acknowledge that. But at the same time, it's not that the presence of one need excludes all the presence of others and so just because people are homeless doesn't mean we don't offer them medication that would be absurd so it's the same to me that people say oh well i I, you know don't think there's a role for lifestyle it's like well that's absurd because and i'll give now an experience for just my so so where i the population i know quite well because of my experience as you said in queensland health is is with patients with severe mental illness lots of schizophrenia bipolar eating disorders um and severe mental illness and a a lot of these patients are homeless and sort of pending residential care or or, or have come in as being homeless and so like this is a marginalized group and so and and the evidence here and this is why equally well Australia was set up because um, there's been I can't remember now but there's something been like 40,000 studies or something absurd on the amount of um the, the role of lifestyle interventions sort of across the board. And when they look at that in people with severe mental illness, they see that it's, you know, people with severe mental illness want lifestyle interventions just as much, if not more, actually. Um, they're as effective, meaning that you can, they will uh, they will quit at the same rates and, and they will have a similar response, say, from the nutritional approaches in uh, depression and the other things I said before. So I to me, I have, I'm very when people say things like that to me, I'm I'm almost cautious of their um, philosophy that um, it's almost like a jaded cynicism. Um, so, of course, acknowledging that there are major barriers and there are priorities in their management, aka social work and accommodation. But don't you know? People say it about people's female illness too. Oh, they you know they they're not occupied, you know, they don't care about that, you know, or their weight gain or, or whatever it is and um, or smoking, that's not important. We're just going to treat their mental illness. It's like, oh, man, you know, <laughs> like, give me a break. You treat the whole person. That's what biopsychosocial care is. And and one little case study I'll give you and then that'll, that'll be it for my answer. I know they're long answers um, is, you know, I had a patient who, who was in that situation in, in the ward admitted weight, appending uh, some sort of sort of supported care with schizophrenia. And he was sedate um, all the time. He couldn't work. And they were believed it. he was on very high doses of uh, medication, antipsychotics for his schizophrenia. And it was presumed that that was because of his, that was the cause of his sedation. I was running these lifestyle clinics. Um, I did an, a, a proper full assessment of his lifestyle determinants. Uh, I wondered if it was his sleep. And then there were a few other sort of nuances to this case, obviously. But we ended up 
running a lifestyle plan, which included a sleep plan, a sleep assessment. He had severe obstructive sleep apnea. Um, he then got on CPAP treatment for that. Um, and then he, you know, just woke up. I couldn't believe it. The next clinic I saw him about a week, he was like a different person. And then he started exercising. He then realized that he you know, didn't really like the feeling of coughing and feeling short of breath. So he uh, quit smoking and then he became a peer support worker. And that was his path out of um, desperation and, you know, social despair because he now had a, a you know, career and he, we could actually build towards that direction. So you don't know where healing and recovery starts. So don't assume that it won't start with some lifestyle determinant. That's, that's, that's a great answer. And I exhort all our listeners and viewers to try and really use some of these lifestyle interventions. You never know what's going to stick and what's going to be effective for a patient. And as you mentioned, Sam, it is an equity principle. This is stuff that we would offer for, for all our patients in with other conditions. So substance use disorder is, is no different. I guess something to, to ask is how sustainable are these lifestyle interventions? Sometimes, um, people kind of respond well initially. And I guess, do you find that the adherence to some of these lifestyle interventions kind of progresses onwards as as the patient seeing benefits, or do you find that there might be a bit of a drop off in terms of people adhering to some of these lifestyle interventions in the long longer term? Oh yeah, for sure that that that's a problem. Um, the it, it's interesting because it, but it's it's very interesting when you look at the research here. So um, certainly in weight loss, that's a real problem, or or the inability to maintain weight loss on lifestyle plans but when weight isn't the goal and this is important when weight isn't the goal but rather uh, targets that are about well-being like cognitive function mental health um, energy levels um, aesthetic things how you look um, or you know specific measurables like hpa1c and diabetes or cognitive function or you know da, 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 da. when there are other metrics the adherence is a lot higher um, and so I think we need to move away, like, and, and same, this, this, there was actually, I think, was it, 20, was it earlier this year, perhaps, or was it 2020, but there was a meta-analysis um, and a systematic review done of lifestyle interventions around antenatal, antenatal periods, so to prenatal before women get pregnant, during pregnancy and post, showing very consistently how, like, I think the evidence was that if we did pretty basic lifestyle interventions during antenatal care more effectively, we would save $500 million a year just because of the less C-sections, the less complications, both to mum and bub, lower NICU admissions, et cetera. So that was done by Professor Helena T. from Monash. That's, that is, it's an impressive piece of work. And so, um, so so if we focus on those aspects, that what is relevant to a person, you generally find behaviour change, inverted commas, to be far more effective. But having said that, it's not all rosy. It's not panacea. Like, you know, people don't do it sometimes. So that's reality. And I often, that's probably one of the first things I say to clinicians when I'm training them is like, just remember we're dealing with humans. You know, we don't do what we're told at the like full stop really, but you know, we don't do what we're supposed to do. All of us don't, we're all imperfect. Um, so don't expect that from your patients. You've got no idea, like you're planting seeds here, you know, and some germinate straight away. You know, like people may not be ready to quit smoking, but they may be ready to start walking or lifting some weights or, you know, doing whatever or connecting with an old friend or going out for a walk in the bush or something. They may be ready to do that, right? So we've got to, so one, what is success? And two, just accept that everything germinates at different times. You know, and some take years. I've had patients tell me three years later, they come back and see me and say, you know, I quit smoking. I did this. I remember you saying that to me. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, yeah I, that was a while ago, but yeah, I did. So you got... 
no idea when when how people take things on. So do it nonetheless. The second thing is, uh, you know, get, get we are not good, and, and this is you know especially what uh, there's of, you know this is potentially controversial to say, but I don't think the healthcare system is very good at supporting health and well-being. Um, I think it's good at reacting to problems. I think it's extremely good at doing that. You know, trauma, <laughs> childbirth, um, you know, safety, infections. We've succeeded enormously in some areas, but what we're not very good at is managing chronic disease yet. And one of the aspects, one of the many aspects we need to get much better at is our communication skills and our health coaching skills and our behavior change method, uh, this understanding of human psychology the why humans do what they do and being much better at supporting them in behavior change. So we're not really trained any of that. I, I now teach people in it, but that's postgraduate. You know, you don't get taught that in GP training. You get taught a little bit of motivational interviewing in med school if you're at one of those lucky med schools. But, you know, there's a, there's a way to go. It's a very big field. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say to this is that if we're really going to help people be sustainable, uh, then we also need to change the way we deliver healthcare. And, I think primary care is kind of archaic. I was going to be um, brutally honest. I think we basically hasn't changed in 40 years. Uh, in fact, maybe got worse because there's just more disease, more chronic disease, um, less money relative to you know the need that we have, more investigations <laughs> that we've ever had before, you know, more choice of treatments from pharmaceutical that we've ever had before. Things are harder, I'd say. So we haven't evolved with the times. We've got so many impressive ways of doing things now with, you know, push notifications and digital platforms and um, using the time and waiting rooms and group shared medical approaches and decentralizing healthcare in the sense of workforce, you know, peer support. I mean, there's so many options for us now with, to, to evolve healthcare delivery um, that will improve, as I just said, with, say, smart recovery and a peer-led recovery. That is more effective than me advising a person to quit a substance use disorder. You know what I mean? So when we realize that actually peer-led is probably more effective than a GP-led, and that's my experience too. When I was working in the hospital and I was running lifestyle clinics, it was I found consistently that the peer-led lifestyle group that had formed, which was led by a peer support worker, was more effective than the work I was doing. And that, you know, that that's just that's just the reality. So we've got to then think, okay, what do we offer as GPs now? But maybe that's another bigger question. But <laughs> but the point is we need to evolve the way we deliver services. Absolutely. And I think that's really a, a, a clarion call to really think about how we deliver healthcare and, and, and the approaches that we use. And we really do need to think about novel techniques and novel methods of, of delivering healthcare if we're really going to make that meaningful and sustained changes in our patients' lives, which is, I guess, as healthcare practitioners, what we really want. We really want to initiate that change and lead our patients towards good health. And I guess also, uh, this is a bit of a shameless plug to our listeners and viewers, but if you really want to read further into lifestyle interventions in substance use disorders, Sam and I and a few other authors have co-authored a piece in the Australian Journal of General Practice about this very topic that you can access. But I thought, Sam, just to, to round out this episode of Cracking Addiction, is there anything else that you'd like to, to tell our listeners and viewers about lifestyle medicine or where they could access more, more supports? Because I know you're the president of the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine. Is there anything that you would recommend for, for our listeners and viewers if they've found a, a bit of an interest in this topic? Yeah, thanks. I just realized we may not have said that right at the beginning in the bio. <laughs> but the, yeah, so uh, like I'm pro bono president, to be very clear. I do it for love, not money. I'm just a volunteer. But the, 
Uh, yes, uh, thank you. I've spoken enough, but I will just say if people are interested in this area, becoming a member um, or doing some of the training with the Australian Society of Lifestyle Medicine is wonderful because we, you know, we've got conferences, we've got fellowship programs, we've got exams, et cetera, and training packages. But really it's just, again, about meeting your tribe. You'll just find a lot of other people who just really uh, care about this biopsychosocial way of caring and evolving and uh, the healthcare system, this movement, I suppose. And again, likewise, to address the social determinants of health. I mean, we should be, more needs to happen on that front. Uh, so if, if you're if you liking what you're hearing, then uh, yeah, join, join the crew. It'd be lovely to meet and greet. Great. Well, thank you very much, Sam, for joining us on this episode of Cracking Addiction, where we've talked about lifestyle interventions and particularly lifestyle interventions in substance use disorder. So to our listeners and viewers, thanks for your attention and bye for now. Thank you.